0: Welcome to the AM Global Podcast Series, addressing business concerns we face today. In today's conversation, we're joined by Health System CEOs from across the country who will share their perspectives and challenges they continue to face amid the surge in COVID-19 cases and the innovative solutions they've implemented to continue serving their patients and communities throughout the pandemic. Well, welcome to this podcast. I'm Larry Kaiser, Managing Director with Alvarez and Marcel. I'm a cardiothoracic surgeon by background, but uh, today I'll be the moderator for this particular podcast when we're going to talk about the impact of COVID-19 on the health system in the United States. I want to thank all of you for joining us today, and especially I want to thank our guests who we'll introduce momentarily. As the COVID-19 crisis continues to rage on with spikes and surges across the nation, health systems are again faced with similar challenges as we saw during the previous apex of the crisis in the spring. As the cases partially subsided during the summer months, health systems were able to ramp back up essentially normal operations with a few exceptions, only to come into the fall filled with rising COVID cases. On the bright side, Hospitals now have had time to prepare, and we've learned much about treating this disease. I'm fortunate today to have two outstanding physicians whose experience is extensive, but different. First, let me introduce Dr. Robert Parrish, who is the Vice Chancellor for Health Affairs at the University of Illinois in Chicago. Bob is, a, uh, is an emergency medicine physician by training, also has his MBA. Prior to his current job, he was the chancellor of the LSU Health Sciences Center at Shreveport. But prior to that, he spent 24 years at the University of Maryland, where he rose to be chief of, the, of emergency medicine, but also was the associate dean for clinical affairs. So we're very pleased to have Bob with us today. We're also joined by my former colleague at Temple, Dr. Tony Reed, who by training is a family medicine physician who also did a sports medicine fellowship also has his MBA. He joined Temple in 2016, and we recognized his tremendous administrative as well as medical knowledge. And he started off as the Associate Chief Medical Officer for Temple University Hospital, and very rapidly became the Chief Medical Officer for Temple University Hospital, and now in fact is the Chief Medical Officer for the Temple University Health System. So we've got a couple of different perspectives today. I'm very pleased to have both of you uh, join us. So let's just jump right in. Let me start with you, Tony. What what do you see are the greatest pressure points on your systems in times of surge capacity, like what we're dealing with uh, right now? It's hard to call this really a second wave because I don't think we ever got out of the first wave so tell me what the experience was initially. Things got a little bit better. Tell me where you are now. What are you doing with elective procedures?
1: Yeah, that's an uh, excellent question. And first of all, thank you, Dr. Kaiser, for uh, for inviting me to be a part of this. It, the first time around back in, in March, April, there was a lot of unknown about the disease itself. Uh, we didn't know the course we didn't know what the actual mortality rate was there weren't any therapeutics to treat it we didn't know how much was going to be in our icus versus the floors versus out in the community and so there was a lot of uncertainty there was a lot of fear there was a lot of of uh, really hesitancy in in what we were doing during that experience uh, we learned a lot about ourselves as we learned about the virus we learned what we could stretch to what our capacity could be what we can do uh, when our, our backs are against the wall and the world is closed down, we took that experience, uh, extrapolated from it and figured out how to grow and build over the summer so that we were ready for the next wave. Uh, and so you're right, it never really went away, but it did get to a point where we were able to catch our breaths, to look back and say, how do we handle this inside the buildings? What are we doing with regards to ventilators? What are we doing in ICU space? What are we doing with with uh, ECMO? Uh, what are we doing with therapeutics? And we've built a program that this time around, as the numbers have risen, we've been able to stay open in both of our ambulatory environments and with our elective procedures. Our ICUs have not been overrun, in part because the disease does not seem to be as bad in this wave. But at the same time, we've also gotten better at how we handle it and where we handle it in the buildings. And so I've got fewer people ventilated. I have fewer people dying. Uh, I'm able to make better use of the available therapeutics from remdesivir to monoclonal antibodies to others. And we've been able to contribute to the science along the way with 35 different clinical trials going, including a vaccine trial with the J&J Janssen, uh, while keeping our normal book of business open. And so we have not canceled any surgical procedures. In fact, Dr. Goldberg, our surgical chair, has managed to push the threshold, and we're doing more now than what we had been in the time leading up to COVID. And so a lot of that was pent-up demand because of the closure before. A lot of it is the requests put upon us by our patients who didn't want to be disrupted again. And, And a lot of it was just our general preparation, more hires, I have more nurses now than what I did before. I have more physicians now than what I did before. Pharmacy, I've added a couple respiratory therapy. We've gone out and find uh found some folks. Uh and it's just it's it's been a tremendous effort uh, as we've prepared and as we've been able to move into the second wave.
0: So let me uh let me switch over to to Bob. And so Bob from the system perspective from where you sit. Tell me a little bit about the experience you've seen in Chicago, what you're seeing in your hospitals, what you're seeing in the region. Right.
2: So, uh, well, thanks, Larry. And uh, I agree with everything that Tony said. Uh, I was just looking back upon our numbers. Uh, although we're a relatively moderate, uh, moderately sized uh, University Hospital, about 485 beds. And on April 24th, we had 90 patients uh, in the hospital and 30 on the ventilators. And as Tony uh, talked about, over the course of the summer, Uh, our numbers really decreased to where we only had six patients in the hospital in July and we had nobody in the ICU and nobody on a ventilator for almost three weeks. then, of course, this second, uh, whether you call it surge or wave, uh, came and uh, we're back up into the high 70s. But as Tony said, not as many people intubated. Uh, We now have, as as, uh, he said, remdesivir, dexamethasone, uh, we're using the monoclonal antibodies, uh, just as you talked about, uh, uh, Tony, at, at, at Drexel. Uh, so we're better prepared, better prepared with PPE. No question about it. We stocked up on PPE. We have 120 days. All but those small N95s. And if, Tony, you can find a way to get us some small N95s, we'd love it because we a lot of our staff, you know, have facial <laughs> characteristics where they need that small N95. So that's still a, a little bit of a challenge for us. What we're finding now, though, and um, is a number of, of uh, staff have come down uh, with Covid nineteen in the community, not necessarily hospital spread. And uh, so we're dealing with uh, at times might have beds open, but we're uh, we're dealing with a, a nursing shortage and a staff shortage in that regard. and uh, And we're competing with people in places like Texas, even though we have a nursing school, Texas is now paying, uh, from what I understand, up to $200 an hour. So sometimes we expect nurses to come, and the next day we realize they've gone to some other state. So that's a challenge for us uh, because of the community spread. And also, we've learned that if it occurs in the hospital, it occurs when we let our guard down. When there is a celebration in the in the uh, break room, people retire. There's a birthday, and and suddenly people maybe just let their guard down with their mask. And so I'm sure, as as other hospitals have experienced, that's where our our cases are coming from, uh, if we have them at all from the from the inpatient. So um, right now, as as Tony said, we're running two hospitals. We're running a COVID hospital, and we're running a, a hospital that's 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 normal. We haven't uh, cut back on essential surgeries. We are, we're doing uh, we're one of the largest transplant services in, in Chicago. We're, we're doing all of those things. We've learned how to handle it. One of the things that we had to do, Larry, though, in the first wave, we had to shut down pediatrics. We shut down our pediatrics and transferred our cases to Lurie because we just didn't have the adult the capacity. So we gained another 20 ICU beds by doing that, but it was very demoralizing for our pediatric physicians, our nurses, our staff, our patients. Uh, but we had no choice during the uh, the first uh, wave of the pandemic to actually make the, those uh, difficult decisions. And of course, going back, it's all about your incident command, how you do things on a detailed basis, uh, how you stand that up, how you do your, your triage military tents, all the things that we ought to do, your drive-through testing, all the things that academic health centers have had to do. We, we've all learned together. So it's uh, it's been a challenge, but uh, I think... I see some light at the end of the tunnel. I, I think April is going to be better than December and uh, as we're all getting ready to uh, uh, to do the vaccine within the next week to 10 days and uh, I think it's, it's it's exciting for us but we have a saying I'm not the one who has invented it stay positive test negative. So you know that's what I say.
0: And and Tony let me let me turn it back to you. Um are you seeing staff burnout, and have you had many staff uh, infected as well? Uh, you mentioned that you were able to hire some additional staff, but tell me a little bit about how the staff are doing with this whole thing. And it's sort of never-ending. I think people thought, gee, it's slowing down in the summer, and now they're back and taking care of all these folks. Have yeah. you also set up uh, additional facilities to take care of these patients?
1: Um, yeah, and let me let me take that in two parts. The staff first. Um I, I, I mean, first of all, the, the staff here at Temple is tremendous. Uh, their their, their sheer willpower and resilience, their dedication to what we do uh, serving the underserved in North Philadelphia is is amazing. Uh, and through it all, uh, with all of the shortages and pending shortages and looming shortages, Uh, They stood by us, and and we really, really connected and worked well as a team. When we came into this in the fall, uh, we knew we needed to get more help. That's where we were able to do uh, both hires and uh, external agency and stuff like that. Uh, And at the same time, we planned ahead knowing that, you know, as the uh, positivity rates in the community go up, the positivity in the staff would as well because they live in the community. And so... Our first major outbreaks in staff happened as a result of break rooms, uh, small facilities. Uh, everybody kind of tightly compacted, uh, and we started to see clusters like that uh, among uh, patient-facing and non-patient-facing employees who were eating together. So we had to come up with alternative places and and downtime spaces and break rooms. And, you know, the the ninth floor of our Boyer building is ordinarily executive offices. That is now... Uh, resident uh, space for in-between patient care. That's now where a nursing break room is. That's where lunch is served every day. Uh, right. And so we've taken some of the administrative spaces, converted them into downtime and break spaces. And that's really what helped cement the relationship with the staff is when they looked at that and said, "We're our executives are willing to give up their space for us. Uh, it, it took that level of commitment to a whole new height. And so Here and now, uh, as we stand today and are doing this podcast, I have more patients in the building here on Broad Street than I've ever seen. We're at about 540 uh, and ordinarily 500 would make us sweat. Uh, And so we found new and creative places to put patients. Uh, The the outpatient offices that were in the Boyer building uh, are now uh, partially converted to hospital-based space. Our, our building that was created to be an inpatient pediatric unit, that's the Boyer building, uh, one of the general floors is now an ICU. Uh, and so those kind of conversions is really how we added space here. The city of Philadelphia took it one step further. During the first wave, they took the Lea Chorus Center, turned it into a, a relief hospital uh, for patients towards the end of their acute phase. This time around, rather than doing a field hospital, they took one of the nursing homes up in the north of Philadelphia, made it a 120-bed convalescent unit. And so if patients become positive in their nursing homes or in their skilled nursing facilities or if they need to go to one from a hospital and are positive, it's a contained unit for post-acute care and for long-term residential care. And so those are the kind of support things that have been placed around us to create the capacity, Uh, the, the people side of it, you know that really has uh, like i said it's been a tremendous effort of our people uh, coupled with what we've been able to do to hire up uh, in the areas that we were
0: and and bob you guys had been on the forefront of testing, as I yes. recall. There was some work done at the University of Illinois in terms of a uh, sh- t- short time turnaround testing. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little about tell me a little about the experiences you've had with testing, and also
2: if you're familiar, tell me a little bit about how you're utilizing uh, telehealth. Sure. Um, let me just answer. Add one thing to Tony. We um, we also increased our uh, our mental health support for our providers and our nurses. Uh, besides the hotline, which some people still wouldn't call uh, because they were you know, a little bit afraid, uh, our Department of Psychiatry really stood up and began to do inpatient rounds with our, our nursing staff and our physician staff. And when you're on the floor uh, with people caring for COVID-19 patients, it made a big difference that they actually were there. So uh, we, we have kudos to our, our Department of Psychiatry that really stood up. So as, in regards to testing, there's two types of tests that are used at the University of Illinois. One is uh, they're both saliva tests. The University of Illinois uh, at uh, Urbana-Champaign uses that test primarily for its students. Uh, they've done almost a million tests, saliva tests. They do it twice a week. And Urbana-Champaign is in, I, I would say, more of a relative bubble uh, than Chicago. So it, it's really kept the, uh, the university open, um, and it's, it's been just a remarkable thing. What we've done as a healthcare system, because we can't do just one test. Uh, we have, as you know, in a laboratory, our pathologists do over 200 tests a day. And they're, they're full of other things, but we developed our own saliva-based test, slightly different from Urbana-Champaign. It was Clio certified. So it had to be Clio certified, our laboratory. And we used it primarily on what we call the undergraduate campus, the East Campus, in our dorms, in our athletics, and then our performing arts students because our singers and our, our music, musicians and everything, oh, they were at high risk, too. We have been using it on our West Campus, on our health science campuses, uh, the seven Health Science Colleges campuses, for, um, asympt- again, it's asymptomatic testing. This is all asymptomatic testing. And we're using it if we see a slight outbreak, let's say, in dentistry from the community. We will test everybody, all our providers, for two weeks. And so if we find some, and then the other part is is tracing, contact tracing, and we use our School of Public Health uh, to do our contact tracing. We've used it in pharmacy. Just recently, we had a small outbreak in uh, neurosurgery, and we used it. We actually brought the saliva test to the unit, and we tested them. They loved it. And now, uh, in January, uh, Larry, we'll get up to 3,000 tests a day. So that's 18,000. The saliva asymptomatic, and because our undergraduate campuses is, is mostly online, we'll be able to test more and more of our healthcare providers with asymptomatic testing, and uh, they've really liked it. It, it takes uh, it, it, it takes about three minutes. You get the answer back on your phone in about four hours, and if you're positive, you're followed up by a contact tracer. So um, our saliva test, both at Urbana-Champaign and at the University of Chicago, has really been. Uh, very, very successful in keeping our campuses open and actually being used in, in the healthcare arena. I think the other aspect of your question is, in regard to tele telemedicine, telehealth, uh, obviously, we have increased uh, remarkably in the use of, of this technology. Uh, one of our leading departments that, that really uh, used it was uh, psychiatry. I mean, we found a tremendous use for uh, telehealth, telemedicine, psychiatry. And I just looked at the numbers for our physician groups. All our phys- physician groups have uh, come up remarkably, and, and we're now at about, across the board, uh, for our 17 different departments, of, we're about 92 or 93 percent of where we were uh, pre-COVID. So that's a good thing. Uh, whether we're reimbursed the same, that's a different issue. <laughs> we get, but. Um, to Some of our departments are 100% or more, but on average, we're about 93% uh, of our activity pre-COVID. So that's a, that's a good thing. And that technology, obviously, is, is here to stay. Tell me a little bit about what Temple is doing with
0: telemedicine. And also tell me what you're doing with testing. Uh, does Temple, do you have in-house testing? Are you using saliva tests? Who are you testing? Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yep. Okay. Um, and I'll, I'll I'll start with testing. Uh, we have, uh, throughout most of this, relied on the mainstay of PCR. Uh, our our lab here in the hospital uh, still prefers nasopharyngeal uh, over anterior nasal, just for the accuracy of what we're getting. And so while we were working inside of the building, that's where our focus was. Uh, in the uh, ambulatory environment, most of our testing was either of pre-procedural testing, pre-admission testing, uh, or some community-based testing. Uh, and there we were doing um, mostly nasal pharyngeal, a little bit of nasal, uh, as we've worked to develop. Um, up at the uh, Fox Chase Cancer Center, they developed their own modality for for doing PCR testing and have been able to test on a recurring basis both the employees and the patients inside the building at the Fox Chase, Chase Cancer Center. Now, starting with the spring semester, it's a lot of what Dr. Barish talked about with the university. We're doing a saliva-based test Uh, out of the university with Dr. Gerhardt's lab over at the medical school uh, to be able to test students in almost the same uh, paradigm that that Dr. Barish mentioned, uh, two times a week for those that are high risk, whether they be dormitory, whether they be uh, performing arts or or athletics, uh, once a week for those that are doing in class or living in group settings, and then every two weeks for those that are doing mostly live but living in the community in the neighborhood and on campus. Our athletics teams all along have been governed by the American Athletic Conference, which is twice a week while in season and, and once a week while not in season. And so uh, it's really taken a a whole system effort to put together that we've been doing um, PCR-based testing at, at the university, at the Fox Chase, and here at Temple. Uh, we've done a little bit of the rapid testing down in student health, uh, particularly when they have a patient who is symptomatic or a student who is symptomatic they need an answer back in 10-15 minutes, they'll have it back. If that one turns out to be negative, then they'll send it up to us and using either our Cepheid or one of our other devices, we'll turn it around for them in about an hour or two. Uh, so that's that's been our testing paradigm. Now with telemedicine, that's been an interesting story. We had not done a lot of telemedicine prior to COVID. We had the foundations in place. We had some fundamental stuff we were doing, some pockets of it. Uh, We ramped up, and by June, had completed over 50,000 telemedicine visits. Uh, And so in a five-month period of time, 50,000 visits uh, for a place that had not done a lot. We're doing them uh, primarily uh, at the start. It was in primary care, cardiology, pulmonary. Uh, We've now expanded so that we're doing it across all of our specialties, uh, including some efforts in the emergency department across facilities. And so we have the Episcopal Hospital, which is primarily behavioral health. There aren't any specialists over there. We'll do a telemedicine call with our uh, specialists and our consultants here on main campus over to the Episcopal campus to hope not to have to move the patient over to them. Uh, We've also got a fairly robust deployment up in our cancer center uh, and in being able to maintain contact. And we've uh, expanded the, uh, the horizons in our transplant programs to prevent patients from having to come down from far away. Uh, And so all of those were an effort to, A, ease the burden in the offices because we didn't want to overcrowd the offices, but then B, make it easier for patients who didn't necessarily want to venture out into the community and run the risk of getting COVID um, simply for a follow-up visit or for some other kind of visit that could be handled uh, with an audiovisual communication.
0: A lot of places have experienced a decrease in patients utilizing the emergency room for often because of some fear of being exposed to the disease. You've got two very busy emergency rooms there, the one at Episcopal and the one at Temple University Hospital. Have you seen a decrease in emergency room visits during the time that we've been experiencing uh, the COVID pandemic?
2: So that's an interesting question, because when we first uh, saw COVID-19 back in March, I think patients were scared to come to the emergency department. You know, there was an actually an academic uh, study that that said so many physicians across the United States have had decrease in, in their revenue, have had uh, their pension plans re- reduced if they have that, have had uh, to be furloughed, um, and uh, one of the hardest hit across the country was uh, emergency physicians. I think seventy one percent across the country had a decrease in pay or, or laid off or had other things happen regarding their their 401K contributions. That is not the case this time. I think patients uh, are used to this. They're coming to the hospital now. Our numbers have gone out, uh, gone up significantly. I think uh, our patients have gotten used to, okay, we have to live with this. And if I'm having chest pain, (laughs) numbness, tingling, an infection, uh, other issues or uh, issues with cancer, you you name it, all the things that are seen in the emergency department, they're now coming in. So we're seeing uh, a regular uh, volume of emergency uh, patients as well as obviously the COVID-19 patients that are coming as well. I think the days of them not coming are long gone, but I'm curious to hear what Tony has um, at at, uh, Temple.
0: Tony, tell us a little bit about uh, what you're seeing in the emergency rooms at Temple. Yes, people did stay away for a while, but as Bob said, they, they're coming back. Has that been the experience uh, in Philadelphia?
1: Uh, absolutely. That has been our experience here. Um, we, we had a number of cases that we could uh, directly attribute um, uh, negative outcomes back to a delay in care, uh, in part because of the fear of the patient uh, uh, coming to the emergency department. Um, We couldn't tell if it was just the national rhetoric around it, the unknown of the science, the lockdown or what. We spent a lot of time over the summer working with our local and state governments uh, to say, you know, we've got to get better messaging out there. We really need to do some advertising to encourage patients to come to the emergency department. Um, I never thought I would do that in my career. Uh, But at the same time, it made the difference. People stopped delaying their care, they started coming in. Uh, we are seeing an increased volume. It all seems to be respiratory related. And so you know we'll end up with a, a um, you know 15 people in our, our waiting room that come in all at once between the hour of five and 6 p.m. All some kind of respiratory complaints. We have to work our way through the social distancing, get masks on them, and then run them through the system. And so it still comes in waves for us. And those evening hours tend to be the busiest. All seems to be uh, pulmonary complaints. We will still get uh, our, um, you know, the gunshot victims, the the stabbing victims. Our trauma program is alive and well. Uh, unfortunately. Uh, And we still get our fair share of of the cardiac patients uh, who are coming in. And so I I don't see the numbers going down this time around. Um, I think we've been able to enhance the flow to keep things moving. We've spent a lot less time on divert now than what we had uh, in the past, but more time on divert today than what we did back in April. And so... (laughs) You know, there's still that balance of now we've got to go back and say, okay, let's make sure patients know their primary care offices are open, specialty offices are open, the urgent cares are open. And so it may be better for them to use some of those other resources as opposed to come straight to the emergency department.
0: And and, and just to follow up a little bit on the kinds of things you're seeing, Tony. Has there been any impact on the transplant programs? I mean, you have this huge lung transplant program. Have you seen any impact on the transplants?
1: We, we have not. Uh, even with that period of downtime from late March to mid-April, uh, we are still on track with the numbers that we had been on prior years. Uh, we follow it through UNOS, and, and everybody in our region seems to be in that same kind of pathway, that you know, despite the, the four- to six-week uh, um, downtime, uh, we've we've caught that up and, and are holding pace with where we were.
0: Bob, let me switch gears a little bit and ask you about some of the financial impact that you've experienced and that others in Chicago have experienced. You had to at least initially cut back on elective cases. Uh, some of these, um, you know, some of the reimbursement clearly has changed. You've probably got some CARES money. Tell me a little bit about uh, the financial uh, aspects that you have experienced uh, in Chicago and specifically at the University of
2: Illinois. So um, as I mentioned uh, in my opening comments, we're relatively uh, moderately sized academic health center, 485, 490 beds. I think that small size helped us, quite frankly. Uh, We don't have long-term care facilities. We don't have uh, four or five ambulatory facilities out in the community, other than we have one of the largest urban uh, academic federal health health qualified centers. We have 13 of them throughout Chicago and some of the worst neighborhoods hit by COVID. So um, I think our size helped us and our CARES Act money helped. Um, and it also helped us support the College of Medicine. So I have an obligation, uh, not only with the hospital and the clinics, but to oversee our, our academic components. as. As you know, for a while, our physicians were just not seeing very many patients at all, other than those emergent and urgent cases, as you talked about, uh, with essential surgeries being really cut back. So uh, our hospital was able to at least make enough money, have a little bit of a margin, that we could help the College of Medicine out, which was, that, that's the beauty of having this, this type of uh, structure here at the University of Illinois. I have an obligation to look after everybody. So this last year, Okay this year is going to be really tough i expect we're going to lose tens of millions of dollars um unless we get some support that that's just what we're in now i don't i don't know what's going to be for for tony but last year we survived did a little better than break even was able to support the college of medicine this year we're going to have uh really some additional challenges going forward
0: tony you don't necessarily deal directly with the finances, but you might be able to uh, tell us a little bit about. I, I know the temple benefited greatly from some of the CARES Act money. Um, where do things stand financially in a in a safety net hospital that it's always challenged? Yeah. Where do things stand currently?
1: It's. Um, I'll say it this way. But for the CARES money, uh, it would have been a lot tighter. And as you know, the 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 transition that we. Went through, Year and a half up to COVID happening uh, had put us in a position that we had more space in the building. We had more a, a more efficient operation. We'd we'd finally gotten length of stay under control. We finally got some of the expenses under control that we hadn't been able to. Uh, it really put us in a position that uh, we were at a a almost a break even sort of um, position coming into COVID. The CARES money helped. Uh, prevent that loss and and give us a little bit of an advantage. We were able to then turn that CARES money into capital to set us up for this time around. Uh, and so far in FY21, our numbers in all of the procedure areas are up. Our numbers in the admissions are up. Our length of stay is still down to where we had gotten it um, before COVID. And so when you, when you start looking at that combination, we're pretty optimistic about where we are here for FY21. Uh, what's what's not yet been written is the story of the next six weeks. If we have to shut down electives completely, we have to shut down on all non-COVID activities, uh, we're going to be in some pretty desperate uh, straits by the end of FY21. For the moment, though, uh, we're, we're holding our own. Uh, we've been able to keep all of that happening. We've been able to keep the electives uh, uh, up and running. Uh, we've been playing catch-up on all of that pent-up demand from March, April, May, and June that really has has allowed us to, to soar with it. So we'll no more as the time goes on, but so far uh, it's looking okay. So Bob,
0: the Pfizer vaccine looks like it's going to be approved with an emergency use authorization this coming week. The Vaccine Advisory Committee at the FDA meets tomorrow. The data on the Pfizer vaccine is already out. We know what it is. The, they released those data yesterday what are you doing in terms or what are your current what's your current thinking in terms of vaccine distribution both from the the standpoint of your institution but also is the state giving you some mandates as well tell me a little bit about what you're thinking in terms of vaccine distribution or for that matter what the city and state are thinking
2: so um we're fortunate that we uh um, our, our Dean of the School of Public Health is going to chair the vaccine <laughs> a group, a scientific group for the City of Chicago, the Chicago Department of Public Health. Um, and we are expecting our first uh, shipment of vaccines, uh, as you said, within the next 7 to 10 days, hopefully. Uh, I'll just put a number out. Suppose our initial uh, number is 500, right, and which allows you to, to vaccinate really 250 uh, people. Uh, this is a very complicated process, Larry. <laughs> and, you know, I was talking to our, our dean of the College of Engineering. It's almost an industrial engineering process because, first of all, just the logistics of the of the freezer, the backup power, the monitoring. Uh, Who do you give it to? Does it go to the ICU first? Does it go to transplant? Does it go to anesthesia, head and neck surgeons, emergency physicians? Uh, That's assuming people want it, by the way. That's assuming they actually, people actually want it. And then, well, if if you give it to uh, five of our ICU nurses, but you have a reaction, so they're they're out for the next 24 hours, uh, what happens on the unit? I mean, every time we look at this, the variables are tremendous. And so I h- hope people realize, and I'm sure Tony, I see Tony laughing, this is not a simple process. And I know I've read that Nebraska says, oh, we're just going to, we're going to do a lottery system, <laughs> you know, that's how we'll deal with it. So it's going to be very challenging and, um, uh, but we're going to work our way through it. We're going to learn everything. We've set up an executive committee on part of it and, uh, our infectious disease experts and, uh, and our, uh. Our chief operating officer and CEO are a part of it, as well as our dean of the College of Medicine. So I could tell you more in seven to 10 days. We're working around the clock to make sure we do it. One of the things I'm concerned about, once we have the ability to get it out into the community, is will our underrepresented uh, communities actually take the vaccine? I'm out in the city of Chicago all over. And people who are very reasonable, by the way, these are are not quote-unquote anti-vaxxers, I would say. They're just, they're concerned about it. And especially in uh, the black community dealing back with tuskegee uh there's long-term memories and so we have a lot of issues with communications to to, to get this out into the community even once we have an adequate supply and so we're looking at a vaccine core uh, you know and i guess in um uh in the internet you talk about the last mile or whatever we're, we're looking at that that last component to get it to vulnerable communities and it's going to be a real challenge but I can tell you more in seven to ten days, or I can tell you we're working around the clock with all the variables to make this happen. And I hope Tony, I'll, I assume you're having the same issues with thinking through just back you know, getting the vaccine to your healthcare providers. Yeah, Tony, tell us, tell us what
0: you're thinking in terms of uh, distribution of vaccine at Temple.
1: Yeah, and I. Uh... I was, I was smiling because I am the point person for the system on this and everything that you just uh, uh, elucidated has been my life for the last two weeks <laughs> it will be for the next, oh, I don't know, foreseeable future. And so we it, Pennsylvania is a little bit unique in that the Commonwealth is receiving one set of allocation and distribution and the city of is separate from that. And so Philadelphia is not considered part of Pennsylvania for this particular distribution in this process. So health systems have had to put in their paperwork to both places, have had to really manage that across the board. Fortunately for us, everything is inside of city limits. And so we've only had to work with the city uh, while listening to where the state is. With regards to the city, we know what the allocation is going to be rough idea when it's going to be here. We've been told to start uh, getting people ready to go for next Wednesday, assuming the timelines go the way they're expected. And so that's what today's effort was, was getting our our tier one employees, those who are out in the front lines of the fight against COVID uh, lined up and ready to go. All of those same considerations that that Dr. Barish mentioned, you know, you don't want to do an entire department in the same two day day period of time. You want to make sure that you have the right number of slots for people that you do vaccines to do. You want to make sure you have the logistics to get a frozen vaccine from Broad Street to the Fox Chase neighborhood, um, you know, two miles and 20 minutes away. Uh, and it still has to be maintained at all the right temperatures. And so it's getting everything in the right place at the right time for the right use. And then there's the staff to do the vaccinating. You know, It's making sure we have enough people that can go through the volume of people who are being vaccinated. It's making sure that we know who those people are so we can get them back on day 21 uh, and making sure that it's not going to interfere with our coverage schedules, our work schedules, our patient care time, and all of those things. So it's, it's been a monumental logistics effort to to really get it all to this point. Uh, it's a tremendous team of people here that are, that are driving it all. Uh, and, uh, you know, the next seven days will really tell us uh, just how successful this is going to be. Get to the phase of vaccinating the community. Same story. North Philadelphia is a large underserved community, minority population. Um, it is going to be a tough road um, to really uh, explain to people the value of the vaccine, explain the safety of the vaccine without overselling it, and really getting people to to understand um, that that this is uh, appropriate science, that this has been developed with all the same rigor that normally is applied in an FDA process. Uh, And so we're partnering with the city. Uh, with other health systems in the region across the university and our health system uh, to get credible messengers out uh, to really do risk-based communication to help people understand uh, exactly what this is and isn't and where the importance is. So more to come on that over the next month. Well, I I think, as
2: I'm sure uh, Tony would feel the same way, I'm just so pleased and, and honored to how all our, our faculty, staff, uh, students, residents have, have really come together, uh, technicians, to, to take care of, uh, uh, of our patients. I mean, it's, it's, it's been remarkable uh, what's occurred over the last nine or 10 months. So I'm just so pleased. In that regard, I would like to say that um, we've had a, a number of our personnel, environmental services, some technicians, some nurses who have passed away from uh, this devastating illness. Um, The chairman of the board of the University of Illinois, uh, Don Edwards, was gracious enough to set up a $100,000 fund. And so we have been uh, doing something that's relatively small in nature, but it is something where we are paying for the funeral costs for those uh, personnel uh, who've passed away. Uh, It has meant a lot. Uh, It's up to $5,000 that we just give a grant. Out. And it has meant uh, um, a lot to our, our uh, and our technicians, our environmental services. So I think the entire University of Illinois has come together to try to say, you know, how can we help you in this in your time of need? So uh, that's been great. And I would just, I would just say at the end, um, I think, as I said in the beginning, April is going to be a lot better, in my opinion, than December. Um, and uh, people still have to be vigilant. I know that it's it's been very difficult in everybody, but you can't let your guard down. Uh, we now have, as Tony talked about, outpatient treatment with uh, bam Lam imvamab, and uh, soon to be followed uh, by Regeneron, and we think that's a can help a lot of people stay out of the hospital. Ultimately, maybe not get to the ICU or be ventilated. The vaccine is coming, and so um, better days are ahead. And uh, we'll be in a much better place a year from now, Larry, as you you talk to us than we are today. And and uh, uh, thank you for allowing me the opportunity to uh, be part of this podcast. Tony Reed, wrap it up.
1: Yeah, I I want to start by by thanking you um, for a putting the podcast together, b letting me be a part of it. I think in in this time of rapid change, rapid development, the more information and knowledge we can share, uh, the stronger we'll all be together. Uh, it's, uh, it's been unprecedented times in just the, the amount of, of decision-making that we've had to make with little known information, uh, with the speed with which we've had to do these things, with, with how we've set up. And so having the opportunity to, to communicate uh, with others around, this, um, around the country, and, and frankly, around the world, on what works, what doesn't work, how to do this quickly. It's been tremendous. It's it's uh, it's not made anything easy, but it's made things easier and, and has allowed us to all grow together. Uh, and so I thank you all for that. Uh, and for anyone listening, I'm I'm always open to hearing how things are going in, in other parts of the country.
0: Well, let me thank both of you for your participation today. It's been extremely, uh, knowledgeable uh, individuals passing on information to us, two people really on the front line. I'm grateful to both of you. And again, thanks very much. And thank all of you for joining today. Alvarez and Marcel. Leadership. Action. Results.